This is an ABC podcast. This is Science Friction with Real Wild Child. It's our series of staggering stories of kids and science. Natasha Mitchell here with a story today of science crossing a line. I have to confess that at the time I didn't know what the Robbers Cave experiment was. And the line in this case, look, it's a big gaping cesspit of ethics. The name of it just grabbed me, reminiscent of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Peggy. Once I realised that, that was murder. it was basically an experiment that was a bit like a real-life Lord of the Flies experiment. What good are you doing talking like that? I assumed when I went looking for the boys from Robber's Cave... We were scared! ..that I would meet men who would be now in their maybe early 70s and they'd tell me the story of the experiment and what happened and what they remembered. Oh, piggy! But what I quickly learned was that none of the boys had been told after the experiment was over that it was actually an experiment. It was an accident. He asked for it. It was an accident. The children you just heard, they're fiction. Actors in the confronting 1963 flick, Lord of the Flies, you might have seen it. It's based on William Golding's novel about a group of schoolboys stranded on an island and who gradually form rival groups, brutalising each other. But the kids you'll hear about today, they're all too real. Golding's view was, I think the quote is, that man produces evil like a bee produces honey. Mm. So he felt that it was human nature, that if you put boys out on a deserted island, they will revert to their true selves, which is savagery and violence. Psychologist Dr Gina Perry, she's author of The Lost Boys, Inside Musafa Sharif's Robber's Cave Experiment. Sharif's was almost the opposite point of view. His view was, we're born good, and it's the society we live in, it's the groups we're part of in that society that shape how we behave. So Sharif's was a much more optimistic view because his belief is that if you change society, you can change the relationships between people and you can create conditions of peace. And social psychologist Dr Musafa Sharif wanted to put that to the test. Gina Perry's earlier book, Behind the Shock Machine, investigated Stanley Milgram's notorious obedience experiments, where subjects thought they were applying painful electric shocks again and again to innocent people, simply because they were told to. In researching that story, she stumbled on another, and she describes it as one of the most daring field experiments in the history of social psychology. Uh, hello, my name is Walt Burkhardt. We're talking today because 50, 60, almost 60 years ago, I was a participant in a camp in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. It didn't feel, even at the outset, like a normal summer camp. My name is Doug Grissett. I'm in currently Albany, New York in the United States and have had a uh, fairly long career in the law. It felt like a competition, but it was not the kind of summer camp where kids sat around a campfire and sang songs and met each other and were comforted by older counselors. No, Doug's right. This was something different, very different. 
This was the woods. You were a long way from your home at 10 or 11 years old. And I don't get the sense that the counselors were trying to be your buddies. Maybe the boys just felt that at least we had each other. In a remote campground, rigged with cameras and hidden microphones, young boys are put in two groups. Their parents think they're on a leadership program. And then the kids are pitted against each other. Tribes are formed. Games are played. Little do they know, though, the rules are ruthlessly rigged. They're in the care of a group of adults, yes, but those adults have one thing on their minds, doing science. The story of the robber's cave, if you read about it in textbooks, it's about groups, it's about hostility, it's about abstract words, and I thought it was important to remind people that these were children and they were lost because they'd been lost from the story, but also that part of their childhood has been lost to them. So it's early 1950s America. What better way to describe Oklahoma City than a city on the march? A time of optimism. Yes, I am. But it's also a time riddled with Cold War anxiety, of unspoken hostilities, of us and them, of reds under the beds, of McCarthyism. And now all that is to become child's play, literally, with big money from the Rockefeller Foundation and a young team of scientists masquerading as summer camp counsellors. So let's meet the guy running the show, Musafa Sharif, a social psychologist, ex-Yale, by now Oklahoma University. But he grew up in Turkey during the rise of nationalism as the Ottoman Empire disintegrated. I would describe his experience as a child in that period as being a lost boy. What I discovered was that from the time he was born until he was about 17, the country he lived in was constantly at war. I think it would have been a period where neighbours who had been long-term friends, employees, everything suddenly began to be viewed through the prism of politics and religion. But clearly it sowed the seeds of interest for him in exploring how people turn against each other and how peace might be possible between those groups. Yes. He described standing on the quay at Smyrna when the Greek troops responded to a gunshot from the crowd and began bayonetting people all around him. So he was actually there while people were being murdered on either side of him. And he said that that event was something that really shaped his thinking because it made him think about how people could be so bestial towards another group and yet be so comradely and supportive about their own group. Before the robber's cave experiment, another experiment was run by Morsifa in upstate New York the year before, 1953. It's never been written up because in his mind, it was a complete flop. But here was his essential hypothesis. It's in a few stages. First... All these boys were together at the beginning. Bring boys together at a summer camp and they will become friends. There were two groups. Second... Split them up. I was a python. One reason it it stayed with me, because at the time, I was 11, I didn't know what a python was. The boys were quite resentful when they were separated, though. So they tried to bargain with the men and, and say, look, I'd like to stay with my friend. Third. 
foster the strength of each group. One of the things that they did was that the boys developed their own names, the Panthers and the Pythons, so that was seen as a significant indicator that each group had its own identity. They had their own uniforms, they had T-shirts and matching hats. A flag. A flag. These were like little nation states they that were setting like up. They were little nation states. But on the other hand, they, the men had already purchased the flags, the T-shirts and the caps. Sharif would describe what he observed during that experiment as natural behaviour. But so much of it was being channelled and shaped and organised by the adults uh, in a way that would support the hypotheses that they were looking for. Fourthly, turn the groups on each other. They were testing us all the time. Tug of war, running races, getting lost in the woods and finding each other. This particular camp, as I recall it, was not sports for the fun of sport, but sport to win. The next stage of Musafa's experimental design was to make the terms of the tournament entirely unfair, sowing the seeds of hatred between two groups. They paraded a prize and only the winning team was going to get anything. There was no consolation prize. And that prize, curiously enough nowadays when you think about it, was a giant jackknife. They created an atmosphere where I remember I wanted that jackknife so badly. It surprises me that at 10 years old I wanted that knife, which makes me think they could have made it a candy bar and I would have wanted that just as bad, you know. Musafa Sharif and his young scientist colleagues predicted that friends would become enemies and things would get nasty. But then, and here's the nub of Sharif's hypothesis, if the researchers then created a situation that put both groups at risk, the warring tribes would work together and friendships would reform. Peace was possible after war. That was the plan. But things didn't go to plan. There was a flag burnt and, and they were playing humiliation games and in one case there was a strip poker type situation going on whereas where the loser had to dance naked. I mean, these sorts of things were going on. But the kids were sort of suspect, weren't they, of the adults that seemed to be orchestrating some of these situations? Well, yes, and... When you see photographs of the experiment, what's obvious as an observer now and must have been obvious to the children at the time and was obvious to one particular boy who picked up very early that it was an experimental situation was there were these groups of men standing around, often just watching and not engaging. Yes, so they might not have put it exactly into words, but there was a sense of uneasiness. I once described this, I think, to someone as a dark memory, not a sharp and vivid memory, but a murky dark memory. And that's not my memory of any of the other summer camps I attended, any of the other competitive circumstances I've been in in my life, all my life. Win, lose, or draw, nothing dark, nothing murky, but this one was unpleasant. And it was dark. A lot went down on this camp. There were battles, there was sabotage and subterfuge. But contrary to Dr Sharif's hypothesis, the two groups of boys just kept wanting to cooperate. They couldn't seem to help themselves. 
The boys were very fair-minded when it came to games and so even though Sharif wanted competitions that would create hostility, both groups of boys were very careful uh, at the end of the game to always give three cheers for the losing team. They expected that if someone in a game cursed or swore or cheated that the umpire would penalise them in some way. So the boys had clear expectations about how you played and what was fair. And I subsequently, in talking to some of the now adult boys, a few of them mentioned to me that, you know, they'd grown up in the era of Little League and that was learning baseball at that time in America. They knew the rules of engagement. They did. They missed the point. The point was to uh, have us lose sight of the thing we'd been taught since we were little boys and that was sportsmanship. You, you might want to fight tooth and nail in terms of your ability to win a ball game over another group, but you would not fight physically with them afterwards because that would have made you a lesser person. Your victory would have been snatched right away from you. You would have been considered a loser, not a winner. So I, I think that whoever put this idea together that you put a bunch of boys together and you try to get them to fight with each other over sports was somebody who didn't understand American kids. He also overlooked the fact that the boys had made strong friendships in those first couple of days. They kept wanting to play fair. They kept wanting to play fair. He wasn't just frustrated, he was furious. Well, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of resources. It was a lot of time and effort. And he was convinced that what he was exploring at this camp was something that he's, he'd observed in real life. And he was very much of the view that experiments were about confirming what you already had observed. It was not about investigation or finding something surprising or different. It was about actually gathering the evidence for something that you knew to be true. That's not science. There were points at which the staff would push things along, you know, to encourage certain kinds of behaviours that were in line with the hypotheses, which you're not supposed to do. Professor Herbert Kelman, he spent his career specialising in peace and conflict studies, but he was there in 1953 as one of Musafa's young graduate sidekicks. This is like getting into the cage or into the maze with the rat and pushing it. And you're not supposed to push the rat. Musafa Sharif had employed Herb as the scientific conscience of the experiment, helping police the methodology along the way. I think he probably recognised that he had so much invested in this when I, did, when I did it, he didn't like it. In fact, the researchers, Mustafa Sharif and his colleagues, started rigging the experiment. And they started sort of sowing the seeds of destruction. Yes. Well, he called them frustration situations. And basically what he was trying to do was to set up a situation where one group's property would be vandalised and that group would blame the other group. Behind the scenes, the grown-ups, the scientists, cut down a flag, stole items from the boys, smeared and demolished food set up for them, even destroyed one of the group's campsites. All hell broke loose, just as planned. 
but not for long because the accused group denied any wrongdoing. And so they agree that if the, the accused group swears on the Bible that they didn't cut the flag, that the other group will believe them and bygones will be bygones. And that's exactly what happened. So here again, the boys just wanted to believe the best of each other, but... The boys were troubled. They knew something was wrong. It was kind of scary for some of them too. And, you know, reading the observer notes, you know, there are boys who try to run away from the camp. There are boys who wet the bed. There are boys who are crying in the tent at night. So it was a very troubling situation. They understood that the men were not doing the right thing. I remember throwing bricks at a piano, basically destroying a piano. Why we did this, I don't know, uh, but we did it. The things that I remember from the camp are primarily things that are out of character. Throwing bricks at a piano was definitely out of character. The, the premise, they, they weren't researching it. They were trying to prove they were right. I'm not a researcher or an expert, but I didn't think that was a form of research. So by now, the experimental team were extremely frustrated because all their efforts to really fan the flames of this animosity and hatred uh, just kept fizzling out. Rather than to say, there was some other variable operating here that I haven't recognised in my theory. He wasn't prepared to do that. So, An interesting thing happened, a terribly interesting thing happened. These kids found their own way to reconciliation. For anybody interested in these processes, it was a, it was a very exciting event. It didn't have anything to do with the original experiment, but it was a great learning opportunity. Herb Kelman thought it was very interesting. Here was, if you like, peace spontaneously breaking out. Two groups coming together to face, if you like, a kind of a tyrannical third force. But Dr Sharif didn't see it that way. He was hell-bent on his hypothesis being true. So the experiment lost the plot, and so did Musafa. In fact, in an almost comedic twist in this tale, instead of the kids going to war, the scientists did. He saw it as a problem in the execution of the experiment itself and began to blame the staff around him. He brought me there to do something, and when I did it, and he didn't like it, he kind of, uh, you know, totally marginalised me. So, I mean, he really, in a way, betrayed me. I don't know whether I seriously, ever seriously entertained the idea of making this public. As the boys resisted engaging in arguments and fights with the other group, the staff team was fragmenting into two uh -huh. groups who were conflicted and became quite hostile at different points. In fact, Herb Kelman was sacked. The experiment was called off and Musafa never spoke of it. But it didn't end there, because next year, in 1954, in the heart of summer, the Robbers Cave experiment launched in Oklahoma State. And this time, Musafa was going to do things right. It's heavily wooded and there's these amazing, literally, Robbers Caves, so-called because famous robbers like Jesse James hid in those caves and it provided a perfect hideout because the caves are quite high up and so you could hear anyone approaching from miles away. And when you climbed up on them, you might be on one of these things that you had to straddle and scoot up it on Bill Snipes, 
and I was on that trip to the Robbers Cave experiment. A dangerously high, 20, 20 feet. Like if you fell off that, it might hurt you. Now we weren't all that tall or anything in, in 1954, but, but it was high. This time, two groups of boys arrive. But the groups don't meet for a week. They're kept apart to make sure they really fully bond as separate tribes. The Rattlers, led by a bully boy called Red... Crying, for example, was an absolute taboo. If you hurt yourself, if you skinned your knee, if you were bleeding, the last thing you would do would cry. Suck it up. Yeah, exactly. And they swore. They cursed. Yeah, they were, they were, they were the bad boys. Yes, yes. Some of them were kind of bullies. Some of them were not. Some of them were nice guys. Then there was the other group who we, we all hated them and they hated us at first. The Eagles, on the other hand, came to be led by a gentler boy called Davy. And again, it was the leader who defined the culture. The men regarded the Eagle group and they described them this way as sissies, as crybabies. Uh, and I found that troubling because there was evidence in the observer notes and from the boys I spoke to that clearly there were boys in that group who were feeling homesick, as often kids do on summer camp, especially when it's three weeks away from home. Tomorrow morning, June 28, 1954, the tournament will be announced uh, formally in the mess hall. Uh, with the exhibition. This is the sound of Musafa Sharif at Robbers Camp. It's pretty incredible to hear it, isn't it? The children were challenged to a tournament by the fake camp counsellors. And again, it was all just as rigged to build animosity between the groups. But this time, everything went to plan for Musafa. Time for the Eagles. It was eight minutes and 38 seconds. Give the Eagles a... And towards the end of the camp, after things had got really nasty and a winner was declared, a challenge was set to create the conditions for peace. The water supply was cut off. The boys had to work together to fix it, and they did. Musafa's theory of group conflict being resolvable was as he thought. In his terms, he was not crossing a line. He was setting up an experimental scenario that would deliver the outcome that he expected. That sounds terribly anti-scientific to us today, but he came from a tradition of psychological research, particularly that began around the 30s, that was about using psychological research to improve social circumstances to demonstrate, for example, that democratic political system is superior to a totalitarian one. So experiments were used as a way to illustrate something rather than to investigate. So in that sense, he wasn't crossing his own line. In all this, you've thought a lot about the agency of scientists as they design and execute their experiments. And you reflect on what you call the Janus face of science, Mm. the mask of science. What is that? It's this phrase used by Bruno Latour, and he talks about the Janus face of science being two masks, really. One face is the one that faces outwards. It's the public face. It's the one that scientists like to present And it's one that gives the impression of fact, unanimity amongst the researchers, of evidence gathered. It's like the PR face. 
And then there's the face that faces backstage. And this is where things are much more messy and where scientists are not people in white lab coats. They're human beings with political beliefs and personal histories and the demands of funding agencies all weighing down on them and shaping what they think and say and do and what they write. It's that backstage view that shows us how science is made and reminds us, particularly in psychological science that uses human subjects, that these are humans conducting the science and that the impact of their values and beliefs on the work that they produce. The question that everyone is on everyone's mind is, did this experiment change these boys forever? My answer to that is, how could you ever know? Gina Perry is author of The Lost Boys, and that's it for me on Science Friction. You can catch me over on the Big Ideas podcast instead from the ABC and weeknights across Australia on ABC Radio National. So it's a, a smorgasbord of forums and festivals and talks with one mission, big ideas. Lots of science too, of course. And a new season of Science Friction will return later in 2023. Stay posted for that. You can email me at mitchell.natasha at abc.net.au I'll catch you over on Big Ideas Bye You've been listening to an ABC podcast Discover more great ABC podcasts live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app